Good morning, everyone, and thank you very much for joining us for The War Room. I am your host, Sean Ferrick, and joining me is a very, very special guest. He has had a long and illustrious career, uh, basically creating most of the best stories you've ever heard of. Uh, he is the wonderful... <laughs> It's the wonderful Eric Stillwell. Thank you so much for joining me today, sir. How are you? I'm great. It's good to be here. Oh, it's good to have you here. Um, and we were just just before we came on, I was just commenting on the fact that I've looked outside the window and the weather does not represent the joy that I'm feeling right <laughs> now. Uh, monsoon season has hit Ireland. Oh, no. <laughs> We've had a bit of rain down here, too. Oh, it's it's it, it's. Hard. I mean, like it's June. It's to be expected. No, yeah, no, that, yeah. that, yeah, no. Um, Eric, well, thank you so much for joining me. I really, really appreciate it. Um, you were so kind. We reached out, and you said yes, like straight away. So, thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, so to those who don't know, um. You, you, you were involved. I mean, like, I just want to talk about this first because we're going to talk about all of your wonderful, wonderful career. But uh, I think you were involved in an episode some people might have heard of. Um, <laughs> it was uh, a, a vaguely important episode, kind of came with the third season of The Next Generation. Uh, wh wh which episode is it I'm speaking of? Uh, I, I guess you're probably talking about yesterday's Enterprise. I think I have heard of that one, actually, <laughs> now that you say it. Uh, yes, the incredible Yesterday's Enterprise, which, of course, sort of, um, I think, would it be safe to say that was sort of a watershed moment in The Next Generation. Um, season three itself was, it was a fantastic season. But I think Yesterday's Enterprise is where I think everyone kind of went like, oh, hang on. Oh, 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 The Next Generation has come to play. Yeah, I think um, the entire third season, under the direction of Michael Piller, who had just become the head writer on the show, and he was my boss, um, really changed the course of the, the entire future of Star Trek, not just the next generation. But, you know, there was still speculation at the time that, you know, next generation could be canceled. So after the first two seasons, which weren't as spectacular, the third season really brought the show to life, I think. I, I totally agree. I've um, <clears throat> watched it once or twice. And uh, <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, a fair description is that, yes, but the first two seasons, um, much like any early seasons of any show, um, you know, they stumbled and tried to find their, their tone. Um, I, I would argue that the first season of The Next Generation is spectacular, possibly not for the same reasons <laughs> that uh, the third season was. Um, but I want to actually go back back in time because i was i was i was having a look at your um your biography and it showed that you joined in 1987 as a production designer i'm like is, is that correct production assistant assistant i see i see and then two years later you get you know bumped up to a script like how does that journey happen well, um, I, I started as a production assistant, which is basically a, a gopher, go for this, go for that, um, run errands for the producers, deliver petty cash to the actors, scripts, deliver scripts. And there was another production assistant who was a friend of mine from my hometown. I helped her get a job on the show because literally the day I became a production assistant, the other production assistant announced that she was leaving. <laughs> so it's kind but, of tag in, tag out. Uh, so David Livingston um, 
asked if I knew anybody and I suggested my friend Heidi and she came in and she got the job and so literally after one day I was the senior production assistant (laughs) and still had no idea what I was doing but uh, the two of us had to divvy up responsibilities between uh, delivering scripts to different departments and um, Heidi was really interested in the the costume design and and behind the scenes kind of thing so she would do that side of the studio and then I would do like the executive offices and the and the writing staff department and so I was really interested in in the writing of the show and when I had originally interviewed with Bob Justman to be a production assistant he had told me um, you know, the fastest way to become a producer in Hollywood is to be a writer. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's, that's good advice. Cause I always enjoyed writing. Even when I was uh, younger, I think I was in junior high school. I had entered a, a con a writing contest with Lincoln enterprises that was run by Majel Barrett Roddenberry. And I had written a story called the, the great bird. And, oh, and nice. I, I actually, uh, um, I I was I can't remember what place I took, but I was like one of the three winners of the for my age group. So that was kind of cool. And I'd always uh, you know been good at writing, so I thought, well, this is an interesting thing. So I basically focused um, my errands and working relationship with the writing staff and the producers. And eventually, when an opening came up. I was familiar enough with the responsibilities that that uh, Rick Berman's assistant recommended me for the job, and that's how I became the script coordinator, working for the writers. That is that is fantastic. That also, in fairness, that shows a bit of business savvy as well. Uh, you know, you kind of you you knew. But obviously, what direction you wanted to go in, and kind of how about getting? I just that that is hilarious. Now I'm sure the 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 story itself is wonderful. There's definitely a lot of savvy in writing a story called The Great Bird and submitting it to uh, <laughs> to Major Bert Roddenberry. I'll say, good, well played, well played. <laughs> well, I don't know if you remember uh, on the animated series the the 1973 version they went to a a planet that had these bird-like creatures with wings so that was sort of like the inspiration for my story that there was like uh, this whole species of like birds and one of them was the gray bird so i like it very very well put in fact i'm 90 percent sure that that species has made a has made a comeback in lower decks recently it's possible Uh, yeah. Uh, um, of course, Lower Decks itself is just a love letter to all of Trek. Yes, so yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, so obviously, you're you you begin working very closely with Michael Pillar. I think it's safe to say Michael Pillar basically changed the way Hollywood submission um, really worked with, with the with the open submission uh, policy he instigated. Well, at least on Star Trek, he changed it. The the rest of the industry never really adopted his policy of open submissions because the studios are super super paranoid of lawsuits and claims of plagiarism which happen all the time and even with the uh, open script submission policy that michael created we were constantly being accused of stealing people's ideas but it's i was the person who was in charge of 
implementing the submission policy and processing all the incoming scripts and logging them in and tracking where they were in the process of being read or considered. And it, it's amazing how frequently you hear the same basic story ideas over and over. In fact, it got to the point where the writing staff in the writer's room had this big whiteboard and they started keeping track of how many in every category that they like space vampires that's our 23rd you know version of that and all these weird things um so a lot of people think they have original ideas that really aren't that original even after i wasn't working at star trek i got called into the writers guild to testify um in a case where a writer had claimed that on Next Generation, when I was there as the script coordinator, that we had stolen the character of Moriarty from the holodeck episode about... Yeah. yeah. And I'm yeah. sort of thinking, you know, I think that character was created by, you know, another writer. There's, there's another writer's name. It's just, you know, the tape of my... Uh, Arthur something. Yeah, yeah something. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought... How ridiculous is this? <laughs> and, and the person's claim was it wasn't Moriarty from the Arthur Conan Doyle stories because it was a holodeck character. So it, it was not, it was a holographic character, not a real person. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Needless yeah. to say, that person lost their case, but. Uh, like I mean, uh, I I I'd be sitting there going like, how 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 am I supposed to show? I want to be respectful while trying not to laugh really really yeah, hard. During exactly. This. Like, I think mm. I probably rolled my eyes a few times. Like oh my god. <laughs> I, I wonder so. So when you were script coordinator, I mean, roughly how many scripts are you dealing with at this point? Is it in the hundreds? Is it in the? Is it, is it oh. more than the hundreds? Oh yeah. With when the submission policy got into full swing we were getting thousands of scripts and it was taking forever to read through them in the beginning um, we even had staff assistants and various people reading through scripts just to see if they were decent enough to pass on to one of the staff writers to look at and eventually the studio uh, put the mix to that um, they said well, there's a there's actually a union in Hollywood of people who are professional script readers, <laughs> and oh. and so we had to hire a per, a person from the union to do the job after the studio. Someone complained. Oh my! Oh, hang on. So, so someone complained, and so one person had to then go through and read all of these. That seems more <laughs> like a punishment than it, than anything else. Like, <laughs> it does. It's like, all right, we'll follow the rules, but you're not gonna like it. <laughs> Yeah, it, it does seem like a punishment, but we we had maybe two people that we rotated sending scripts to, and they were pretty efficient at it. And they would, you know, they would read the scripts and write up a little summary, and then their recommendation either to consider or pass on it. And if they put consider, then one of the staff writers on the show would read it. And that's sort of how yesterday's enterprise got started because the original um, spec script was written by Trent Ganino, who had submitted it to the show. And um, he, he uh, worked on the lot as a tour guide 
and he used to come to my office like every other day like wanting to know a, a status update and so we sort of became friendly and we spend time talking about you know different episodes and different ideas and stuff and uh one day there the studio was having an employee screening of star trek five mm. and so we we both went to the screening and afterwards <clears throat> we wanted to you know analyze it and dissect it because basically we both hated it and uh... <laughs> surely not not star trek five yeah yeah star trek five <laughs> The Cybok episode. No, <laughs> no spoilers. <laughs> what to talk about? What, what you, son of who? Anyway, anyway, we we stayed out till like two in the morning at some twenty four hour diner, like going over all the ideas that both of us had, and I was telling him about a story that I um, had been developing that was about Sarek going being escorted by the enterprise to the guardian of forever planet <clears throat> where a vulcan archaeological team was studying ancient vulcan history and in the in the process of retrieving them an accident occurs and surak who was the founder of vulcan philosophy <clears throat> excuse me died and uh they had the and the whole timeline alters like on city on the edge of forever mm. except this time you know the pe the people on the planet surface weren't altered so um but everybody up on the ship is living in a different reality and so now the enterprise is at war with the romulan empire and and they think they think Sarek is a spy for the romulan empire and Sarek is trying to convince picard this isn't the way it's supposed to be we need to fix this problem and put everything back and so Sarek's solution is he'll go back in time and replace Sarek he'll become Sarek because when I was a kid I always used to think Sarek and Sarek sound like the same person really <laughs> <laughs> so I came up with this idea and, and I turned it into a story idea <clears throat> but Picard is is people are still questioning whether um, Sarek is a Romulan spy and if he goes back in time he could alter their timeline and destroy the Federation so eventually Sarek and Picard do a mind meld and Picard believes him and he goes back in time Sarek becomes Sarek everything goes back to normal and that was this idea I had so one day uh, Trent and I had become friends and we were at a Star Trek convention in his hometown of San Jose, California. In fact, the character of Rachel Garrett was originally Richard Garrett in his script. And, and uh, it was named after his favorite pizza parlor in San Jose, California called Garrett. <laughs> and so we were in San Jose at a Star Trek convention and Denise Crosby was the guest. And Denise said to us, when we saw her in the autograph lane, hey, you should write a, a story and bring me back because she had left the show and now I think she was regretting it and she wanted to come back. And and so we started thinking about how could you bring her back? And we both realized, because see, what people have to understand is um, Trent's story did not involve any time alterations. 
it was just a a, a moral dilemma about uh, enterprise from the past shows up and we have to send them back but we know they're gonna die in a battle so do we tell them or do we let them stay or mm. you know what do we do it's a moral dilemma that we have to decide but it didn't involve <clears throat> any time alteration so <clears throat> there was no uh, I don't know why I have a frog in my throat. Uh, must be living in France. Uh, I wasn't going to say it, but hey, yeah. Um, but just just while, just while you're taking a sip, just want to think it. Uh, so in Trent's original version, we, it was still say prime timeline. It was say yeah. the the same Enterprise D we see every week meets the Enterprise C. Yes. Okay. okay. And and he had also prefaced uh, in a cover letter that if if it was allowed which it wasn't under the submission guidelines that we had created for submissions. He would have had it be the, the original Enterprise A. Well, Enterprise A, not the original, but mm. the one where they're in the movie timeline mm. where mm. they would have all been Kirk and Spock and those characters. Like which the whole have, crew come back. And, and a cameo type of thing, yeah. Oh. Which would have been super cool. And a, a lot better way to kill off Captain Kirk, if you want to know. Uh, don't know what you do. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You know, Captain on the bridge, bridge on the captain. Anyway, so so, um, so again, this all harkens back to Star Trek Five and how we thought we could have done a better story than that. And so uh, this is how. So we after we were in San Jose, uh, I was back in the office, and I I heard some scuttlebutt going around the office actually a memo that Michael Pillard sent around to Rick Berman and that Denise Crosby's agent had contacted them saying she was interested in coming back. And Michael was like, but she's dead. Does anyone have any ideas on how we could use her? So I was like, I'm going right into his office. Like I just stormed in there and I'm like, Michael, can I talk to you? And he's like, yeah, yeah. What's wrong? I said, nothing's wrong. I just have this um, story idea um, about how you could bring back Denise Crosby and so I pitched this idea and of course with Michael um, he always thought anything that had to do with the original Star Trek was a gimmick and that the next generation needed to stand on its own feet so at that particular time they didn't want to bring back Sarek or do anything like that but he said he liked the time altered scenario and if if and he knew that Trent and I were friends. So he said, if, if you and Trent could combine your two ideas together, um, I, I pitched that to Rick Berman. Rick hated time travel stories. So uh, this was sort of a, a good way of selling a story because our crew doesn't really time travel. It's mm. the other characters who just show up in our timeline. And so uh, Tran agreed to that and we, we uh, combined our stories and that's how we sold the story for yesterday's Enterprise. That is, I, I, love, I love how it, it's come together by degrees. Yeah. Um, because uh, I, it, sometimes, you know, you, you think that, you know, a story just walks in fully formed into the, the writer's head and there you go, what you see on screen is exactly what I sat down to write day one, no alterations, and you just kind of want to go like, oh, you've never written anything, have yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, and it's also funny that stuff that happens behind the scenes sort of manifests itself into the episode because when I was pitching the idea uh, of, you know, 
Tasha saying she needs to go back with the other ship and Michael's like why why would we send someone from our timeline into another timeline and so the argument that Trent and I had come up with was Rachel Garrett dies outside of her timeline when the Klingons attack so they're missing a person that could affect the outcome of the battle so if we let Tasha go back she's sort of replacing mm. Captain Garrett and Michael Filler said to me that's ridiculous <laughs> nobody nobody will believe that and so you might remember in the scene where Tasha goes into Picard's ready room and she, 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 she says Captain Garrett's dead <laughs> they need me or something and Picard goes we need you here <laughs> so basically Michael Pillar's uh, reaction to the idea sort of is manifested in Picard's reaction to to the same it's, idea. It's funny because I actually I always love that scene because um, Patrick Stewart gets to play both a very similar and very different Captain Picard in that episode, and I've always thought that scene was great because you could just see the confusion. Like, what are you talking about? But why are you going fire phasers? Stop talking into silliness, you know. Well, um, it's funny too because I was on the set one day, and Patrick came up to me and said, "Can I ask you a question about the the story?" And I said, "Sure." And he's like, "Am I the same Patrick, the same Picard as in the other timeline?" And so I had to explain to him. You're the same person up to a point 22 years ago when the other ship altered the timeline. And then your life changed for the past 22 years until you were living in this war zone. And so your experiences have been different for 22 years that makes you an edgier, different person. And so he totally you know, accepted that and bought into it. Then a, a little while later, uh, Jonathan Frakes comes up to me and says the same thing. I don't because I don't understand what's going on. Like, what's what's happening? So I explained the whole thing to Jonathan, and he's like, you know, I still don't get it. And even to this day, if if you see him at a convention, he'll say, I still don't understand. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, Jonathan, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fine. It's fine. It's like, remember that one time Patrick Stewart took your parking space? That's how you feel every day in this timeline. All right. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I was, I was saying a, a funny thing that seems to happen um, anytime there is some sort of temporal change or some sort of situation change. Um, Riker and Picard go from being great colleagues to hating each other. Um, and I thought it was it felt like it was some sort of fun running joke because there's so many scenes in this one where Riker will go to speak and Picard will just slap him down. Yeah, yeah. It is <laughs> it is funny. Um how how early on in the scripting process did you decide on Guinan being uh, sort of our viewpoint character or how how we realize that something's gone wrong? So this was the interesting dilemma that Trent and I struggled with in our story writing, because we only wrote the story. The rest of the script was written by the writing staff, particularly Ron Moore. But the whole staff was involved in writing it, uh, including Michael Pillar. And it was Michael's idea to bring Guinan in as sort of the... Uh, person who could see through dimensions or whatever because Trent and I had um, struggled with this idea of how to 
how do the crew know that there's been a time change? And we'd even, in one version of the story, the Enterprise had sent a probe into the temporal rift before the other ship came through. And then when the probe reemerged, it had the backstory the way it originally was. But that seems so technical and boring. <laughs> and then we, we talked about, well, maybe there's something about data or data retains some knowledge that the other members and Michael finally said, why don't we just have Guinan be the one who and then we can bring her into the storyline. So that was a brilliant uh, addition on Michael's part. And, it, and also because of that, it was uh, the only episode of Next Generation where Whoopi Goldberg actually was on set for two days to do her part because she had a big meaty part of that episode. Absolutely. I, I remember um, there was an interview, uh, it's a few years ago now, uh, it's called The Captain's Summit, and um, Whoopi Goldberg hosted it. And uh, she was talking about this this time on The Next Generation where she, you know, she really enjoyed everything. It was great, but she never got to do anything for very long because she had, it was a big film career at the time. I mean, she yeah. was an A-lister. Um, mm-hmm. Potentially around this time is when she won her Oscar because this is when Ghost was out around yeah. this time. Yeah. In fact, I, I had her autograph the Ghost poster for me and I, I had to, she had an office on the studio lot and I went over there and if, if you remember the poster it's supposed to be Demi Moore and and mm. uh, what's his face uh, Patrick Swayze yeah uh, in the poster and she's like well I'm not even in the poster so she she signed her name on Demi Moore's neck and then put this squiggly thing around it and an arrow that says ghost hickey <laughs> 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 yeah that was that was definitely that time frame but whoopi wanted to be on the show really badly yeah no i i, I yeah like i think i think it was she was uh, several interviews where she said she was in conversation with lavar burton and she said i'd love to get a part and, and they didn't believe her for right. a while it's like what, what, or, and, or they thought we can't afford her because like you said she's uh, she's an a-list movie star yeah. now uh, um, just let's just record this for later on. If I ever achieve Ada status, I, I'm saying right now, I'll do it scale. I'll do, I, I will appear. It's no problem. It's no problem at all. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, to say that yes, that his enterprise was well received, I'd really like, I mean, talk about understatements of it all. I mean, it is, it is considered essential episode of the next generation, essential episode of Star Trek overall. Um, uh, uh, like, how do I phrase this question? How are you guys so good? I mean, this was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant idea. And I, I think it's, it's because we were fans and we loved the show and we, we, we were pulling from uh, all of our knowledge and history of the original Star Trek, which doesn't always come naturally to writers on shows today. I mean, like, even though um, people like Brandon were brilliant writers, he had to go and watch all of the original Star Treks. He didn't have a whole lifetime experience of seeing them over and over and being passionately, you know, in love with the show like we were. And so I think when when we were inspired by things like City on the Edge of Forever or, you know, any of of those various 
um, episodes. We that's it comes from being a, a diehard fan. I agree, and there must be, and I mean there is um, a sort of a, a comfort and an ease of like you know we we'll sit there and we know what a self seeding stem bolt is, you know we know what a Jeffrey's tube is and why Jeffrey's tube is named Jeffrey's tube, you know we do things without having to to look them up. I actually feel for you know people who are coming in a bit later on and going hang on you you've said me i have to watch everything from 1966 to understand this reference and i'm like yes i, I mean no 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 yes, well yes, and, one, and one of the impressive things i think about the new shows strange new worlds in particular is they've made a concerted effort to be knowledgeable about these things like the jeffries tube just in this week's episode you know it's there they don't talk about it but we all know what it is so i mean it's not maybe new viewers who've never watched star trek don't know what it is but it's all the subtle details i think that they bring to the show that that tells you that they're really they really want to be authentic to as authentic as possible i'm not saying continuity is their number one <laughs> I I I I know what you mean. We 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 do we do a show every week where we sort of go through um break down the episode. Uh, yes, I am that guy who goes well actually in this scene, but um it's 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 I think it's it's taking continuity as close as they can while still like well, we still have to advance the story. There's I think there's yeah. a bit of that, and that's and that's fine. Um, so I, I'm just accepting it as a slightly altered timeline. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, I had a chat with uh, with Doug Drexler a couple of weeks ago, and it's nearly word for I'd say nearly word for word. The two years are okay. Yep, slightly altered timeline. That'll do me, and it works. It's great. It's, because it's, every week I can say something like, "Oh, I don't think Nurse Chapel knew about the Pring," <laughs> or in this episode, Spock already knew about this. You know, but you know, it's entertaining. It's well done, and I I really appreciate the effort that they're making to, uh, you know, bring stuff to the fans who've been watching Star Trek since the original series. Did I actually, funny, so early TNG, I know, get, well, at the time, got a lot of, um, oh, this, it's not the original series. This is not Kirk. It's not my enterprise. You know, when, when you're sitting there and you're sitting in this situation, do you feel that pressure on top of you to be like, uh, we have to, you know, make sure that, you know, we're, you know, kind of, we can't go past a certain warp number, which I know has been one of the most inconsistent things you want to say. I love that as well. You know, threshold, love it or hate it. I'd love the warp 10 thing, I'd have to say. Yeah. Um, do you feel pressure? And then specifically, like you're bringing in, uh, a, an old unseen enterprise in, what kind of pressure do you guys feel when you're working on this? Well, I don't know. If we felt pressure on yesterday's enterprise but the, as the script coordinator for the series i was one of the people responsible for pointing out continuity issues because in the early seasons first and second seasons of uh, next generation uh, they were constantly doing the it's like nothing we've ever seen before or Dr. Crusher, I've never seen anything like it. And I'm sort of like going, but, but back in the original series, they saw something exactly like this, <laughs> even though it turns out to be something different now at that stage in the storyline. 
if you see this empty hole in space, it looks exactly like the immunity syndrome from the original series. Um, there could be a giant amoeba in there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was always sending notes to the writers and producers saying, you know, can we say something besides oh, I'm such a stupid Starfleet officer. I've never read any of the history of the of Starfleet. <laughs> I, I have nothing. I don't know anything about whatever happened on the original Enterprise. <laughs> we, we have to sort of like be consistent. So they, a lot of times they would um, take my notes and and change things a little bit. But the, but the continuity, um, I took it pretty seriously on Next Generation. Because it is, I think... Um, uh, as far as I know, right from the original series through till certainly the end of Voyager, um, the continuity is tight. I mean, I'd, 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 again, I have been that person with the kind of the pads and paper going, oh, no, okay, that adds up, that's fine. Enterprise, it did it clever, I will say. Now, it, it obviously, we see Ferengi, we see Borg, we see these things that you know, technically we've never met before, um, but it did it clever. And then as you say, then when, when we get to things like discovery uh, and onwards, um, con- con- sort of continuity, kind of with a bit of a pinch of salt. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. the good thing about it, about discovery is they went into the future where they don't have to worry about. <laughs> well, they sort of do a little bit, but not as much as when they're a prequel. Yes. To- um, so. After after yesterday's enterprise, so I mean, I'm I'm thinking it's like right. So these two people, I'm going straight to them for the next story idea. Um, what 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 happens on the day after you deliver yesterday's enterprise, or even maybe I say after yesterday's enterprise airs, and you know, so fans like me are just like they need to write everything. They need to write every episode <laughs> coming forward. Well, I don't. I, I worked for Michael Pillar for many years and I thought he was a great boss. Um, but I don't, I, my, my personal opinion is I don't think he thought of me as a writer per se, because there's this thing in Hollywood. Like if you start off in a certain job, like you're a costume designer, once a costume designer, always a costume designer, even if you have aspirations of writing or whatever, um, so even though he liked our idea, I think more credit was really given to the staff writers like Ron Moore, who polished up the story and uh, the staff who actually wrote the script. But Michael and I had this little ongoing competition over the years about <clears throat> who wrote the best episodes, best of both worlds or yesterday's enterprise. And, and I would always say, uh, well, we had the best one-hour episode. You might have had the best two-hour. <laughs> no, no word of a lie. No word of a lie. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Um, but also, uh, I, I guess I can admit that I never um, put as much effort into pursuing a writing career as I just did with having my career period. Um, Because we, I pitched lots of other stories. Um, David George and I sold um, Prime Factors to Voyager. And we pitched a lot of stories to Deep Space Nine and never sold any of them. 
you have background. Can you hear my wife talking to me in the background? Oh, did you, uh, uh, not clearly, but hello to her. <laughs> um, so there was some, you know, disappointments along the way because, like, David and I had picked this specific story to uh, Ron Moore and <clears throat> Ira Bear and the whole crew about um, Dax meeting one of her former um, hosts who happens to be a woman and we're like you know what if you know not it wasn't a a former host it was just this woman that she had had a relationship with when she used to be a man when she was Curzon or whatever and now she's a woman and she runs into her old flame and we pitched this idea and I remember originally Ira saying something to the event we can't do that story because Michael Biller's homophobic and I'm like well that's, first of all that's not true he wasn't uh, that's a hell of a statement yeah I think maybe Michael was more concerned that um, Star Trek was a family show and he wanted to stick to shows that he could sit down and watch with his daughter who was like not very old at the time in fact she was a baby when Next Generation first started um but then like we he said uh, michael then went on to just being a consultant and left his role as as uh, executive producer so we pitched it again and they said well you've heard this story some variation of it so many times i don't think we're gonna do something like that and then they came out with the story exactly like what we pitched to them and and the and, that, and remember I told you about the whiteboard where they hear the same stories. I thought it's possible they've heard the same <clears throat> variation a hundred times. But by the time they did it, when the episode came out and there was an interview with Terry Farrell in TV Guide, hmm. her exact quote in TV Guide was, when the producers approached me a year ago, and I'm thinking, a year ago, that's when we pitched our story. <laughs> And, and asked me if I would be willing to kiss another woman on screen. This was in her interview. I'm thinking, they stole my story. <laughs> I, and I never like rocked the boat or said anything about it because, you know, it is what it is. I mean, David and I also pitched a story uh, for Deep Space Nine where uh, Riker's clone comes back and steals a prototype ship from Deep Space Nine. Before they even announced that they were doing uh, the Defiant, I was like, "That's literally season three, episode Defiant." I mean, and I know. So, so we, so these things are disappointing because, in the course of history, it's like yesterday's Enterprise. One little event could have altered my entire career as as a writer because back um, during the first season when I was a production assistant I had written a script called Shattered Time and it was an, an homage story to uh, Reagan's Star Wars ballistic missile shields oh, yeah. back in the 1980s where they and, and it was sort of inspired by a Wink of an Eye from the original series Yep. where they go to this planet and they, there's these beautiful cities and, and and artwork all over but there's no people and they can't figure out what happened to the people and 
um, there were these beautiful mirrors and things all around in all the buildings and galleries. And what had happened to these people was they had created a a transporter like um, bomb shelters where if you went through these, you were like transported into like somewhere else where you were being held for security but they uh, but everybody on the planet had disappeared into these and they couldn't get out until the enterprise shows up but the enterprise ends up passing through one of these in orbit of the planet that's sort of like from the superman movie with the giant mirror like floating there and and so now they're trapped in, in this sort of weird holding space and there's a bunch of other ships in there, which is kind of like one of the animated episodes, where they have to work together to figure out how to get out instead of fighting with each other. Because there's like Klingons or Romulans or whoever also stuck inside of this thing. And it was called Shattered Times. So in the end, it's sort of like they shatter these things and break out and resolve the storyline. And I had written this as a spec script and I'd shown it to um, some people uh, like sam friedel who was the production line producer on next generation back then and he said he really loved it and maurice hurley who was the head writer liked it and they'd shown it to a studio executive tim isofano who who literally told me and i don't know if he was just bullshitting me but he said he goes i read like a dozen scripts every night before i go to bed and this is the best script i've read in like weeks or months or something and so everybody said we're going to show it to gene roddenberry and if if he likes it we'll do it <laughs> and i'm thinking wow this is great and then gene didn't like it <laughs> and Aww. so so my childhood idol like shattered my dreams <laughs> Oh, God, damn it, Gene. I mean, Gene, what did Gene Roddenberry know about Star Trek, really? <laughs> you know, kind of like, uh, oh, my goodness. So so it's like you you sort, you sort of start evaluating uh, these moments in time and realize, you know, life is what it is. Sometimes it works out one way and sometimes it doesn't. So It is. I mean, it's a, it's a series of, you know, look uh, plays a part, uh, timing plays a part um because i mean the amount of times where let's say you pitch a story on a monday and now nobody you know reacts well to it pitch the exact same story on a thursday and that's the best oh, yeah. thing we've ever heard yeah uh, um i mean I, I even remember uh <laughs> when we were pitching the story about riker's clone and uh the and the prototype starship that they, he would steal from deep space nine I Ron Moore like sort of leans forward and says, "We sort of have a story like that, but I'm curious what happens in your story." <laughs> I could see um, a, a, a someone could be forgiven for thinking if they were taken. Well, what if their ending's better than ours? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> For for legal reasons, I'm not saying that's what happened, but one would be forgiven for thinking it might be. Uh, and then if you look at Ron Moore's career as an example of how one moment in time can change everything, he he was a he had submitted a speculative script 
to Next Generation. He had never written for television before, and uh, they they bought his his episode and loved it so much that they asked him to do another one, and they he, they liked that one. And the next thing you know, he's producing all the greatest science fiction on television. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I, you're right because it was the. I know it was a submission process that brought him in. I mean, which, which just again, it baffles the question. Like, you came up with yesterday's enterprise. How much better of an of an idea do you need to deliver? I mean, well, uh, this reminds me of, of Michael always telling us. Uh, even with yesterday's enterprise, he thought there were too many gimmicks and the audience will only accept a certain amount of like i don't know what you would call it back in those days uh, i but if i had known that today we would call them easter eggs <laughs> mm, yes of course <laughs> which, yeah. which michael filler didn't know the term um because one of the things we wanted was um at the end of the episode where the klingons are, are telling the enterprise to surrender and prepare to be boarded we wanted it to be michael dorn doing it and michael's like that's just too much of a coincidence uh, coincidences the audience will only accept so many coincidences and then it's unbelievable and like michael that would have been the greatest ending of all time <laughs> it really, I mean, it, it really I mean, in my head canon with all due respect to the actor who does deliver those lines i i do like to think that it's just you know oh it's just a bit garbled over the communications that's actually wharf that's yeah. actually wharf. Uh, <laughs> i mean that would have been fabulous um, actually, you just wanted. Sorry, speaking of Worf, um, I'm speaking to a Klingon right now. I mean, that's <laughs> that, that's that's a bit cool. That's a bit special. Kapla, indeed. Uh, I know because Undiscovered Country. I've no problem saying it. Undiscovered Country. It's my favorite. I think it, it is my favorite track overall. Um, okay, it's there's. So so now you know I'm going to be sitting there in the scene that I'm watching. Going, like, all right, where is he? Where is he? Good uh, luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how close are you to, say, the judge? If I go like one, two, three to the side, yeah. Well, Trent Danino was one of the judges. Was he? There's three judges that only, the light's only shining on the middle one, and there's two on the sides. Trent was, I think, the one on the left-hand side. Left-hand side. Okay, good to know. I'm going to turn up the brightness on my TV right the way up to see if I can actually, yeah. Um, and, and then I was uh, one of the Klingons and standing in the rafters because that was a circular set and they had three sections so whenever they would change the camera angle they would just have all of us move around and stand in different places <laughs> makes, makes, works yeah and it was I have to say I mean I love Star Trek it was and I love looking back on that it was miserable doing that was that because because you always hear about particularly the Klingon makeup, just how unpleasant it is to wear the Klingon makeup? Was that why, well, or was it just long hours? Or it was a combination of the background act. The background people do not get makeup; they get rubber masks. Ah, okay. Yeah. And the only makeup you get is this brown um, that they paint around your eyes so that when your eyes are looking through the, the holes in the mask, it blends in. Otherwise, we were stuck in these rubber masks for hours on end because the costumes were on the outside of the rubber flaps, so you couldn't take it off except at lunchtime. And uh, 
it was so hot on the set because of the, the big lights, camera lights, and they were pumping um, corn smoke into the room for atmosphere, and you couldn't breathe through the masks. They, it was really horrible. Um, so on the second day, so many of us had complained to the, to the assistant directors that um, Nicholas Meyer asked the ADs to go out and find something for us to, to breathe through. Because I thought, I'm going to bring a turkey baster with me so I can pry it, pry it through the, and, and be able to breathe. But what they came up with is uh, they came back uh, with this little box of plastic tubes that they had bought at the store. <laughs> and and uh, they, I, I don't know if it was the AD or Nicholas Meyer who's telling us, uh, you know, if you can't breathe, just pull the string. <laughs> you're like, how, how does that feel to you? That you're like, you know, what? I mean, I never thought in my career I'd be standing there going, if you can't breathe, pull the string. Something's changed in my career from being, you know, script coordinated to now I'm stuck in rubber and I can't breathe wearing a tampon in your mouth <laughs> at what point and, do you go i've made it this yeah. is yeah well and i know for, I, I positively remember nicholas Meyer coming out and telling us don't forget to remove the tubes before we start rolling the camera because it looks like you're all smoking cigars <laughs> i'd also John, bit rich coming from nicholas meyer how many photos do we have of him chomping down the cigar <laughs> on the set of the enterprise yeah yeah uh, um, as uh, so obviously that's not the only trek film you've worked on you were also you were deeply involved in star trek insurrection is that correct i yes i was the script coordinator and michael pillars executive assistant on insurrection hmm. What was that? Because um, Insurrection, I have to say, I, I'm, I unironically really like Insurrection. I think, I oh, think it's a lot of fun. I think it's, uh, I mean, the, 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 I'm sure you've heard this many times. People say, oh, it's like a long episode. Why would that be a bad thing? I know. <laughs> That's what they, every time I hear someone say, it's like a long episode, I'm like, but that's why you love the show. Because you love the episode. <laughs> exactly and, and i always used to say i always used to rail around the whole concept of every movie i, I would tell michael pillar this in every movie the enterprise is the only ship in the galaxy that can solve this problem and it's always this you know earth shattering galactic drama that's gonna ensue in this movie and suddenly the captain who was never supposed to beam down to the planet because it was against Starfleet protocol, is the hero of the movie and fighting hand-to-hand -hand combat. i like, why do we change everything that we loved about the series? Because yeah, you're so, I mean, you are so right. I mean, like, I suppose for the original series movies, I mean, that rule was a place Captain's never supposed to beam down. And I'm pretty sure Kirk laughed at that rule every single week. So, all right, fair enough in him beaming down to the planet for the original series. But Picard really stuck to that rule. I mean, yeah, it, it was it was good, you know, and, and even like send Raker. Yeah. Now, <laughs> like, you, you, know. now you know why Raker was always. <laughs> We need someone expendable. Number one, I thought it was supposed to be an important job that I do here, Captain, but all right, yeah, fair enough. Um, but it was his job to always remind the Captain, I yeah. should know. <laughs> I should have all the fun. 
<laughs> I, I want the locals to remember me. Yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, it's Russia. I, I remember I it was uh, I remember watching it in the cinema and thinking this is spectacular. This is fun. This is spectacular. Um, it had the quieter moments. Um, uh, I I do I I quite enjoy when it slows down on the Baku planet. Um, I think everyone does a good job. So, which is why I always like kind of kind of like oh, insurrection. This is like it's fun. And we've got Picard and Worf singing. You know, it's 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 just it's silly. It's not taking itself too seriously, and it's still I enjoy the message of the movie. Yeah. Um, so. I agree with you. Uh, so I mean, so it's clearly better than first contact. But anyway, moving on. Um, but um, is there is there any like, you know, did you get to be a part of say the creative process on Insurrection? Well, because I was Michael Pillar's executive assistant and the script coordinator for the movie, I I could he would ask me about scenes and ask me my opinion. I, I don't remember any specific things um, that I might've contributed to the storyline. I, I do know um, I, I kept pitching this idea that the Star Trek movies should sort of become more modern and use like um, real like popular music in the in the end credits of the movie because you know in in the jj abrams movies they, they've got uh what's the group uh the beastie boys yeah beastie, beastie yeah. boys which they used in two of the movies and um and so i had actually pitched that the fight the end credits of insurrection should be this song by um the uh vice girls which was one of their ballad songs called Viva Forever. Oh, yeah. I, I know the song anyway. Yeah. And because the lyrics of that song are the story of Picard and Anij and Life Ever After. And, da, 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 da. and uh, I thought it would have been the perfect, but they ignored me. Uh, they always ignored me. And then like years later when when the J.J. When Abrams started doing it, I'm like, see, I told you. You could have done this. And, and I mean, those JJ films are moderate box office successes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Slightly. Yeah. Like they would, you know, kind of, a, they'd wrap up a film, they'd go into their vault and just, you know, kind of start throwing bundles of money at each other. Um, yeah. But uh, um, so once sort of, in, you know, insurrection hits the theaters, it's right. Um, it's kind of, I know it said that you obviously you said you, you sold the script Prime Factors to Voyager, which I think that had come before Insurrection. Is that is that right? That was yeah. mid 90s, yeah, 96, I think, 95, 96. Um, what so what that so Insurrection was so what what then is next for say for, for, for yourself? I know you got very very involved in uh the fan, uh, the, the fan group. I think you're a Guinness World Record holder. Not me personally. No, uh, the timeline has been altered. No, I, I was involved with the Star Trek clubs back in the in the late seventies, early eighties, and the one that I became president of was Starfleet International back in nineteen eighty. And uh, at, at a few years after, I helped regenerate the the club. It became very 
popular, especially after Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and there was a feature story about it. Well, not a feature story, but a story about us in the Starlog magazine, which really boosted the membership. And that at, at some point a few years later, um, it was, and it may still be, I don't know, uh, uh, listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the largest science fiction fan club in the world. I love Trekkies. I do. I am very, I, I mean, like, Guilty I am because you know when we when we come together to organize, we can really do bloody great things. Guinness World Record holder, you know, as you well, said, we, it's the largest sci-fi uh, fan and, group. And we learned so much. Um I was 18 when I was involved and I became like the commanding admiral of, of Starfleet. But then you start realizing that at 18 you think you know everything, but you don't really and uh we we had all these weird things. We had run-ins with with Paramount Studios over copyright infringement. We had letters from the German government telling us that paramilitary organizations weren't legal in Germany. <laughs> okay, hang on. That's a story. That's a story right there. What what were you doing that the German government had to send you well, letters? Every every chapter of Starfleet is like a starship. Mm. So like in my hometown, we were the USS Republic. And I started off as the captain. And then I we got involved with Starfleet. And all the Starfleet chapters around the world are ships, mm. starships. And each ship has its own captain, first officer, all just sort of military ranking and protocol and apparently the german government uh, got wind of the chapters that we had in germany and sent a letter telling us paramilitary organizations oh. aren't all, and this was before the reunification of germany mm. so it was still post world war ii kind of protocol and i was like you know you're thinking when you're 18 like how did I get myself mixed up? <laughs> Am I going to get arrested if I ever go to Germany? You know, <laughs> I, I, I can just imagine it, it, on day one when that letter comes to the door. I can remember. I can imagine feeling very, very nervous. Oh my god! Oh my god! Now I would frame that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just like you know, well, this is how silly it got. Well, and, and back in those days, it was still Gulf Western that owned Paramount oh, yeah. Studios. It was before the current situation and. Uh, we got this letter from the Gulf, Gulf and Western uh, licensing department telling us that we were in violation of some copyright on font, font, because we used the font for Starfleet as the logo of the fan club, oh, and on some bumper stickers and stuff that we would sell to raise money for the fan club, and so we get this serious cease and desist letter. So I write back to them and I'm like, "We're just a fan club." We're registered with the IRS as a nonprofit organization. We, we don't make profit. Nobody gets paid. If we sell a few, you know, posters or bumper stickers, it's just to help finance the operations of the fan club. And the next thing, you know, I get this totally condescending letter from them. Like we're children. <laughs> well, you know, if someone broke into your house and stole something that belonged to you, you wouldn't appreciate it. <laughs> and, I, and I was thinking, 
No, but if I owned a, a worldwide franchise and there was other organizations giving me free publicity and promoting my product, mm-hmm. I'd actually be appreciative of that. <laughs> also, because you know, what, what do they always say? Like marketing budgets are always so big and advertising yeah. so big. It's like, you know, wait, we can get this for free. Yeah. Go on, my friends. Have a great time. Yeah, don't forget to tag. Well, you tag us today. But yeah, don't don't, don't forget to you know, say this. Oh, I sometimes and I, I I feel without wading too deeply into I know what happened, of course, with all the fan productions there a few years ago. Um, sometimes I think uh, uh, a company has come down a bit too hard. On, oh, yeah. Yeah. On well, fan even groups, even yeah. when I was working on the show as the script coordinator, they were really and it was only sort of the infancy of Internet and and that some of the fan clubs had started creating websites and we're using pictures from Star Trek and stuff. And the studio was like cracking down on these fan clubs and these fan groups, like really harsh. And I, one day I was like, you know, I've been there, done that. And I decided to write an anonymous letter to Sumner Redstone, who's the head of Viacom, who owned Paramount, on Paramount Stationery. <laughs> and, and I basically said, you know, you're really you're you're attacking your audience by cracking down on fan clubs who are just people who love your product and are promoting the show for free. They're not harming you in any way. It's not like someday um, they can claim that they have a right to own Star Trek because you didn't do anything about it. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just my imagination, but for a few years after that, it seemed to they seemed to lighten up a little bit and then they got crazy again with the advent of the fan films and Mm -hmm. i think it was because they were about to relaunch the whole franchise with discovery and all these things but they didn't want any other competition for streaming services and stuff i just they just just amalgamate just hire them amalgamate you want to work on star trek no problem there you go you yeah well, then it was like one of the agreement that the studio agreed to was something to the effect of uh, you can make your fan films, but um, no professionals who've mm. worked on Star Trek are allowed to be participating because a lot of them were. And I'm thinking, and that offended me, even though I wasn't doing fan films, but I, I was a professional who worked on Star Trek. You're telling me I can't do anything with a fan film? That's just stupid. It, it, it is, absolutely, because I mean, you're dead right. I mean, how many fan films where we've seen, obviously, in front of the camera, we see cameos, you know, we see that, you know, Renegades, I think, has Walter Koenig in it and uh, Tim Russ. There's lots of appearances like that. And suddenly, regardless of whatever contract said while you were employees, suddenly you're then being told, oh, you now actually can't, even though that was never an agreement and that was never yeah. a legal thing. Or, yeah. or in your contract or anything. You know? uh, um, but uh, I mean, hopefully, I know that's it's it's a few years. I think in try, hopefully there will be a bit of an easing of that because again, Trekkies are some of the most wonderful fans in the world. I've I've been lucky enough to attend a few conventions. Um, I've not yet done any of the Star Trek cruises. Um, I oh oh, and and I mean. They look like a lot of fun. Well, we haven't done any of the CBS ones, but we've we used to um, work with a company called Cruise Trek, 
mm. based out of my uh, Malibu, not Miami. And that, my wife and I have done like 13 of them, I think. Wow. We're, we're, we're actually doing another one this summer with the Cruise Trek group that goes to Iceland. So. Oh, also, I love Iceland. Oh, good. Iceland's not a million miles away. I might just hop on a boat. <laughs> I mean, this one's not an official cruise trek. It's like a pre-cruise. And then the official one this summer is a, a river cruise from Budapest to, to uh, Bucharest. Oh, and what is it? So what is involved? Is it, say, come together, watch episodes, uh, talk trek, just, you know, kind of be fans in a room? Or, or how, how does that work? It's on the cruise treks. It, it and when when Deborah and I were involved with them, it basically generally you're just on a cruise. Mm. But uh, during the times when you're at sea, you, they would um, have rooms where we would get together and do games and and have there would be actors like John uh, or uh, Eric Menyuk and John Delancey oh, yeah. were frequent guests. Uh, a lot of the different actors from Star Trek has been on them. Denise Crosby, you name it, except for the big, huge names that would cost too much. But George Takei's done them. Um, so anyway, we like we've done cruises to Alaska, Tahiti, Baltic, Mediterranean, uh, various river cruises. Panama Canal cruise and the actors just hang out with the, the fans that we have Q&A sessions with the actors my my wife used to come up with all sorts of games that we would play that would be like Star Trek Jeopardy and, and stuff like this and then at the at, at dinner most of the fan groups would sit together at different tables um, including the actors They'd have um, actors' breakfasts where you could come out and have breakfast with the actors. And uh, and then whenever we were in port or doing uh, touristy things, then you, you just had a free day. Mm. So I remember, for example, we were uh, doing a, a Eastern Mediterranean cruise and John Delancey was one of the actors. And we he and his wife and two sons were on the cruise and we, my wife and I had started off in Istanbul for a few days because I um, knew a woman there that I had gone to high school with and she had invited us to come and stay with her and her husband and daughter for a few days. And she toured us all around Istanbul and a couple of days before the cruise, she was touring us around the Hagia Sophia and she's a historian and works at Bosphorus university. She's lived there for like 30 years and so she's telling us the whole history of the building. And, and all of a sudden, we run into John and his wife. And um, who, who was the other actor? Jerry Harding and his wife. Oh, yeah. And Jerry Harding and his wife Harding. were huh? Harding, our godparents to John's kids. So they were all traveling together. And, and they joined in with um, Katie telling the history of the building and they were so impressed they were asking her all these questions so that night they joined us for dinner she had arranged this uh, meal at a restaurant over the that was hanging over the Bosphorus and it was like one of those meals where they do the giant salt dome fish with the, with the salt dome on top of the fish oh. 
and then it comes out and it's flambéed with flames and and it was all very cool but it was funny because my friend katie had some friends <clears throat> from the uk who lived in istanbul at the time and they had all become star trek fans because their friends would bring back videos and dvds from the uk and then they would get together and watch them and so the little the kids who were at the dinner were sitting at the end of the table playing um, star trek who am i where you ask questions and guess and john delancey was so funny he went over and was interacting with the kids and the one little boy was wearing a, a shirt that had some kind of sports logo or something that looked like a delta shield on his shirt and john's like Oh, that looks like a Star Trek Delta shield in the kids. Like, That's why I wore it. <laughs> and it was so cute. And uh, the one kid was very bashful and barely spoke. But at the end of the night, when we were leaving the restaurant and going off in different directions, the little kid turns around and goes, Good night, Q. Brilliant. <laughs> so these experiences that we've had are just. I'll never forget them. They're just fun. Like later on that cruise, we were in Athens and uh, we were taking the subway trying to figure out how to get to the Acropolis. And we, we all got off on the wrong subway station and we were we ran into John and his family again. So we all decided we were going to hike up because we were on the back side of the Acropolis instead of gotcha. the front side. So we're hiking up the side of the mountain and like everybody's like getting exhausted and we come to this little level area that's halfway up and there's this giant map and we're all staring at <laughs> this map like trying to figure out where are we and john just looks at me and goes it's all greek to me <laughs> <laughs> but then the, the best part was we finally got to the top of the hill and we're walking up this path to the Parthenon and there's all of these tourists filing back and forth up this hill and as we're passing these some guys who are coming down the hill I hear one of the guys goes that was cute <laughs> and, and so I'm thinking to myself here we are on the Mount of Gods with <laughs> <laughs> so, I, mean, so, so I, I, you know, if, if people, if they believe in a divine hand, there was one at work that day, you know, uh, that is, that is, class. and I, I, I want to ask you one final question, and it's a, it's a nice light question, no, no thought required at all, um, lovely and simple, what does Star Trek mean to you? <laughs> no thought, required. not at all, Easy, easiest question ever, yeah, well, Star Trek for me because I became a, a fan of the show when I was like 11 years old literally helped form my worldview of how to look at things so it, it literally changed my life and then working on the show like completely changed my life because everything um, I owe to Star Trek basically but the meaning of Star Trek, I think, is hope for the future and that everybody is part of it. I, I love the diversity aspect of, of Star Trek and the idea, especially now when you think about things that are going on in the United States, that the future is about being who you are and, and, and that there's hope for that. 
and I I think that's really the real meaning of Star Trek. I think I think that's wonderful. I I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I I think that Star Trek has given us all a glimpse of what the future can be. Um, and I think I do think we can get there. I think there's a bit of work to be done, but I do think we can get there. Um, and when if we have enough people like you out there writing wonderful stories and giving wonderful memories, I love that. I queue on the queue on the Mount of Gods, so that's just perfect. Um, I, I, I have the faith. So, Eric, thank you so, so much for giving me your time this morning. I really I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun. Uh, you will be welcome back anytime to the point where you'll be like, oh, God, he's ringing me again. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why did I give him my email address? Oh, well, no. I'm more open to it since we're only one time zone apart. <laughs> uh, oh, that's, that's, that's great. I, 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 I feel bad for the poor people. I'm just like, hey, so can we talk at 4 a.m.? Is that is that OK with you? <laughs> but no thank you so much i'm gonna love you and leave it and to everyone who is listening today thank you so much uh have a wonderful day and make sure you all live long and prosper